This is Jess and Mason with A Mostly Green Life sitting down with brothers Roy and Ryan Cedars, co-founders of Yeti, a manufacturer of premium ice chests, drinkware, and accessories that are the pinnacle of performance and durability. We started talking mostly about fishing, but it moves to the Yeti story and then to conservation and sustainability. So stick with it. You won't believe the thing that really catapulted Yeti is also a major win for sustainability. Listen to find out. Welcome to A Mostly Green Life. Today we're talking to not one, but two of the Cedars brothers. These two brothers started the iconic brand Yeti. The roots in fishing, I think fishing kind of runs in y'all's veins. And with the entrepreneur dad, who I would say was rather obsessed with fishing. Would y'all, is, is Roger still obsessed with fishing? Yeah, he's pretty into it. You know, he, he stays after it. He fishes, you know, down in Port O'Connor with us. And uh, he goes to Florida once or twice a year and then... He does some bass fishing at, at our ranch down in South Texas. So he stays after it, takes the grandkids out fishing. Yeah, and, I think uh, that, that is definitely where his passion is. I mean, he has a lot of pursuits. And, and, you know, for my parents, it's probably more about grandkids these days than anything. But right. he definitely um, loves fishing. And, and that's what we were doing growing up with him. Yeah. And, he, and no, his dad was way more into the hunting scene, like quail hunting. But I think somewhere along the way, he picked up fishing and just ran with it. Yeah. Yeah. How about you two? Are y'all, would you call yourselves obsessed with fishing? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. You know, <laughs> fishing, fishing and hunting. Fishing and hunting. Roy and I also fish a lot in Port O'Connor. That's kind of our main place for redfish on the fly rod. And then we spend a little time in the Keys in the spring and early summer. And that mainly just saltwater sight casting with the fly rod is what we're into. And it really, for I think for us, it's all about the time of year. Like there's th- this time of year in the fall, you know, our, I think our mind is more focused on hunting pursuits in the mm-hmm. outdoors. But early spring, it kind of switches gear towards chasing redfish on the Texas coast and then down on the Florida Keys for tarpon. And then, um, you know, through the summer, back on the Texas coast. Yeah, definitely seasonal hunting yeah. versus fishing. Yeah. <laughs> um, I grew up in San Antonio and my family has been going to Port Aransas for the past 25 plus years to go fishing or spend some time on the beach. Um, so I was curious, you know, where you guys, what type of fishing you guys like best and where you guys enjoy the most on the Gulf. And so it seems like you answered it for the most so, part. You know, but I mean, I think that's a good question. I think out of all everything that we do, I, I don't think I'd trade a day of red fishing on the Texas coast. I'm, and I put a lot of thought into that. I mean, we do a lot of stuff, but a, a good day of red fishing on the Texas coast. It's hard to beat. It is hard to beat. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, when the conditions are right, when um, just, it's it's so much fun. So much fun. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So are there any go-to spots or do you guys keep that a bit of a secret? <laughs> no, the, uh, it, the so we we share a house down in Port O'Connor, and and we have um, some boats down there. So there, the the kind of the beautiful thing about the Texas coast, you have the barrier islands, and then behind the barrier islands, you have just thousands and thousands of acres of you know shallow water back lakes, and how would you describe bays and yeah, little creeks, uh, little you know ponds, uh, you know just small areas where you can get away from people and and pull into these areas and look for redfish that are up in the shallow water feeding, you know. So you could be anywhere from, you know, 18 inches to six inches of water. And, and it's 
it's yeah. it's wild, right? You know, you, you're you're uh, you're seeing all kinds of cool stuff back there: birds to fish to um, stingrays, stingrays, crabs. You know, everything. It's really cool. everything's back there feeding. Yeah. Wow, the stingrays come all the way in there. Oh yeah, I didn't no, know that. Yeah. And so, is this all in waders or on boats? No, we're all uh, pretty much all our fishing these days is on boats, where you have mm-hmm. one guy poling the boat and one guy up on front fish, and then a lot of times we're fishing with buddies or whatever. Once you catch a fish, you'll switch, and yeah. the other guy will go back and pole, and then the other guy's up on front. You're both kind of hunting, looking for fish. You don't cast until you see one. Yeah. yeah. So that's sight fishing, where you're you're just standing up there until you. Or you see the red fish and you're putting that fly within a foot of its nose. <laughs> and, um, Take some skill. I don't think I've ever been sight fishing. Oh, it's awesome. My, uh, you know, I grew up fishing with both my uh, grandfathers. Uh, one on Toledo Bend Lake, he had a spot and he had his own little private pond that we'd go into. And then the other one, we'd always go down to outside of Galveston, Freeport and Surfside and such. But you know, I learned how to fish in the 90s, which were the lowest fish stocks of the Gulf, I think, ever. <laughs> and so we just never caught anything. And so I don't think I ever really uh, gained the love for fishing because so often we just didn't catch anything and it was hot. It was always summertime yeah. as well. We'd go to the grandparents in summer and, and fish. So I, I never caught the bug like y'all did. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I think with our dad and his love and passion for it, it was pretty easy to kind of fall into it. Yeah. And um, he would drag us all over the place, down down to Grandel, Louisiana, to go fishing down there. And at that time, we didn't have a boat. We would just do everything from in the surf or passes or from the bridges and piers. And it was a ton of fun. Yeah. And so fishing is integral to the Yeti story. I've gotten a lot of the story from Roy, but I didn't know a big part of it was Ryan, you saw... It was uh, something from Thailand. Yeah, I read that you spotted a cooler at a retailer while you were at a trade show, and it ended up being a a Thai import that somewhat got the story started. Yeah, I'll take credit for that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I read that you spotted it, and then you started the import. That is a piece of the story, but I think, (laughs) you know, to to really get the foundation of the story, it, it starts with growing up in our dad's business. Yeah. And and our dad was a school teacher, a woodshop teacher in Houston. And one of his semester projects was building fishing rods with his students. Back in the late 70s, they were using a wood varnish to coat the thread on a fishing rod. And he he saw the opportunity for his classroom that there could be some other... Um, he developed a two-part epoxy. And that turned into a business. And that's for the thread? Yeah, for the, the thread that holds the guide. Okay, so, yeah. so you have the thread that holds the guide on a fishing rod. Yeah. Put a two-part epoxy. It's a, you know what he developed with epoxies were around at the time. So he just partnered up with with someone that would could help him develop a clear, flexible coating. Right. And at the time, he was looking for a solution for his classroom, but it was something that had a market opportunity beyond his classroom. So he started selling to custom rod builders like himself, but also fishing rod manufacturers as well. Yeah. I remember him telling the story that uh, he went to a trade show and he brought, I don't know, several like, gallons of it in, in little things and he sold out the entire lot. This is the first time um, selling it at a trade show. Yeah. So, you know, the, the story goes where, you know, he's a school teacher, goes to a trade show right before the, um, the fall school year starts and he just was at the right place at the right time with, with the product that people were looking for. Yeah. And he started taking orders and went back home thinking that maybe he could continue to teach. 
But then, you know, the weeks that followed that show just overwhelmed him, and he had a kind of a tiger by the tail. Yeah. And um, and that was in the late 70s. Ryan was, you know, already a few years old, and then, you know, I um, we have a brother between us, then myself, then my younger sister. So we were all kind of raised in that environment. Mm-hmm. And, and it started with that two-part epoxy, but then he, he got into all kinds of rod-building equipment and, yeah. and other glues for putting together fishing rods. It's pretty niche. It's always been just him and a, one or two employees, but we got to, I think the, the cool thing about it is we got to see all of that firsthand of, of wearing all the hats of a small business because it was always right there next to our house. There yeah. in Houston in our garage and then eventually in Driftwood where um, he had a metal building right next to where we grew up. Mm-hmm. And he's, they're still out there. My parents are still out there today. Really? Flux code is still around. <laughs> yep. Still doing. And in the summertime, there was always the uh, trade shows, the fish and tackle trade shows that we would go to as a family. And, uh, you know, we'd usually work some sort of family vacation in or a fishing trip around the trade show. But that was always fun to go see, you know, kind of people you looked up to in the business and, and, and see how the trade show deal worked. You know, hang around my dad's booth and go look at the other companies. And, it, you know, I think going into college, Roy and I both knew that when we got out, we wanted to do something kind of similar, you know, where we could start our own business. We were just exposed to so many people that had businesses in the in the fish and tackle industry that that seemed natural to, to do something like that. So Ryan coming up, we, we grew up building fishing rods. Ryan came out of Texas A&M and started a branded fishing rod company. Yeah, so I was like a customer of my dad's. I started a small rod company called Waterloo Rods, and I started that in 1997, and then I sold it in 2005. Yeah. And, you know, never made much money with it. I did have a lot of fun, learned a lot, and had a lot of freedom and flexibility, but had an opportunity to sell it. You know, I didn't know what I was going to do after that, but I knew that it gave me a little bit of money to figure that out. You know, when Roy got out of school, what, 2002? No, 2000. So I started 2000. Okay. trying to figure out my path. And, yeah. you know, I started, um, I, I worked on a few different projects that didn't go anywhere. The one, one uh, thing that our dad was doing was he was uh, assembling boats for um, the way we were fishing on the Texas coast. And I thought, uh-huh. well, maybe I could turn that into a business. And I was getting this aluminum hull built down in Florida, bringing it up to Driftwood and just rigging it out for the way we were fishing down on the Texas coast. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's, you know, we've been using coolers our whole life. You know, we, we used them fishing in Grand Isle down on the Texas coast here around and then hunting as well but you know that was kind of um, on these boats i was putting a a cooler in front of the center console and one behind the center console to use as a seat and people would use them to you know keep their drinks cold or their fish fresh Mm -hmm. and the coolers that were available to me at the time really didn't match up to the rest of the quality of the boat and and the hinges would break and the the lid would cave in if you used it as a seat and Mm -hmm. you'd start pounding across the bay and that lid would start breaking down and the latch would eventually you know fall off and so you know it was a point of frustration for us um and and again i was i was dabbling in the boat business trying to make it in the boat business but you know when i got this um you know ryan brought this cooler to my attention that he found out in Florida, that was kind of a light bulb moment. Well, you know, here's here's something that I'm looking for that I'm frustrated with, and um, and this could be a, a product that could could help me in the boat business. Yeah. But also, I I quickly recognized that maybe this is an opportunity I should pursue, and mm-hmm. I I became a distributor for that original Thailand cooler, 
Uh, and it, it was originally a high dollar cooler. Yeah, it was. It was. It was a um, when a commodity type cooler like an Igloo or Coleman might uh, retail for fifty dollars. This this cooler might be four x that, like two hundred dollars. And it, it was the kind of the first roto molded, which roto molding is a process, a manufacturing process, very similar to a whitewater kayak, to make a very durable outer shell. Mm-hmm. And um, and it was kind of the first heavy duty cooler that we'd been exposed to. And again, that's a light bulb, like I. I need that for the boat, but I think there's also a bigger opportunity here. And if I could get involved, which I did, I called that company up and asked if I could start reselling their products in in local retailers. So I started knocking on doors with that original cooler and quickly realized that there was a market opportunity. Oh, really? Yeah. It's one of my favorite stories of Yeti and, uh, you know, Roy and I used to get lunch every now and then. And it was right at the point we're getting lunch when he was like, this company is not doing well, but I really like these coolers for the boat. And I think I might import them. I'm like, all right, tell me about this cooler. And he's like, well, it's, you know, it costs like $200 to make. Coolers currently only cost about $50. He goes, they're, they're big, but they're empty and you can't nest them. So they don't ship very well. They, you take up massive amounts of warehouse space and shipping space. And shipping overseas too. And shipping overseas. (laughs) And it's a $300 cooler. And I I think there might be a market for that. And I'm just like, that sounds crazy to me, Roy. We lost it. We lost it. it. Yeah. But what, what came down to is we knew there are other consumers like ourselves yeah. that were frustrated with the shortcomings of ordinary coolers, frustrated with the same... And it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily about ice retention at all. It was way more about durability and hinges and latches and lids that didn't fall apart. Mm-hmm. Something and, that lasted, you know. Yeah, something that lasted. So that's what got us into the cooler business is I started distributing that product and setting up retailers. And I think another funny thing that was going on at the time is that because of the um, what I call a commodity type cooler, an igloo or Coleman, th- those guys were chasing the mass market of Walmart and Targets of the world. Right? Yeah. And that's where the volume was. That's where um, you could get the most consumers and eyeballs. So mm-hmm. what, what was happening is you had Fish and Tackle Unlimited in Houston. They weren't carrying coolers. Although every single person that walked through that door was a cooler user, right? <laughs> and... And so all of a sudden we show up with a product that it gives that independent retailer something to sell. And, uh, and we're seeing that void all over the place. Wow. Uh, you know, McBride's here in Austin, the tackle box in San Antonio. And then it started spilling over into hunting and uh, hardware and all these little retailers, these little independent retailers. They weren't carrying coolers, although every customer that walked through their door was a cooler was user. using them. Yeah. And, um, and you know the beauty about the cooler business is that it's a big market. We knew if we could get it into those stores that we didn't have to convert everybody. We could if we could just convert a small percentage of their of their customer, we're going to do just fine. And so I distributed that original cooler for a few years. It's what got us into the business. I think I also recognized that there was plenty of opportunity to make this product better. Mm-hmm. And um, about that same time, Ryan was selling his company, Waterloo. And looking for something to do, and he could see that I was getting busy. And what happened next, Ryan? Uh, <laughs> you know, basically, I, I I had been watching Roy. We worked out of the same building, right next door to each other, and 
and I could I could see that he's getting a little stressed out, had a lot of work going on, and I had sold my rod company in September of 2005, and then January, you know, I went hunting for the fall, and then, you know, January rolls around, and I'm looking for something to do, and I said, hey, Roy, we let me come down and help you in the warehouse. He had, by this time, he had rented a bigger warehouse where he had his coolers, and... <laughs> And, bigger uh, and, bigger. <laughs> and so, uh, and I had some money from that sale and we made a, uh, a trip over to, to work on that original cooler. Wait, you missed, you missed the best part of the story. Oh, what's that? You, what you came to work for. Oh yeah. Well, I said, <laughs> I said, Hey Roy, will you pay me $10 an hour to come help you in the warehouse? <laughs> and so, uh, he said, yeah, come on down. <laughs> so, and so I, I hired Ryan good rate. $10 an hour. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and it was great. I, I wanted to get down there and do something. It was January. Nothing else was going on. And uh, Hunting season was wrapping yeah. up. So Roy had this, you know, Roy had learned what was wrong with that original cooler. There was a lot of manufacturing Although issues. it was a good product, there was, there was a lot to improve. Lot of opportunity, yeah, yeah. Opportunity and you'd been dreaming about that for three or four years. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. how, how to improve this cooler. So. And did it come with the Yeti name? No, right. it did not have the Yeti name. So this is still when he was just focused on distributing that cooler. Well, we get over there to Thailand where this cooler was manufactured and, and really didn't get anywhere with, with our, our middleman and factory. You know, they wouldn't really listen to Roy's ideas on needing more product and improvements. It, you know, their, their attitude was, well, y'all are selling everything you can get your hands on because, you know, our demand was bigger than their supply. Why are y'all, you know, wh- what are we doing messing with the... Uh, right. It's, it's selling not- well. Why mess yeah. with it? Yeah. <laughs> and and by, but by that time, I had um, kind of discovered some other cooler manufacturers that were you know, selling to the Australian market. And so we, we took a trip from Thailand to the Philippines on that same visit, and we found a manufacturer that would, was willing to work with us with our ideas and build something from the ground up. And, you know, I think that's when we recognized that that, that was another moment uh, uh, that I look back on that, okay, here's someone that can help us create this new product with, with our vision. And um, on the flight back, we started jotting down names for this new company. And that, that's where Yeti came from. So that was January of 2006. Yeah. And so I phased out that original Thailand cooler yeah. and we started Yeti. And Ryan and I started Yeti together. On a, on a plane. On a plane. <laughs> we all have drinks, sir. <laughs> no, it was, you know, first of all. It's a long flight. Uh, yeah. I look back at some of the things we were doing and for us growing up here in the Dripping Springs, Texas Hill Country, I, you know, we were we were sticking our neck out going over there, and you know, I definitely felt like you know I, I felt personally outside of my comfort zone, and yeah. but I think that's what eventually um, any any good story you have to get outside of your comfort zone. Yeah, for sure. And, um, Thailand is such a gorgeous place, and so is the Philippines. Did you guys get to spend or have some fun while you were there? Was no, it, all it was all, all business, and we were all you know in major cities. You know, yeah, it, it was strictly business, and we had the attitude: let's get it done and get out of here. Yeah. uh, We weren't playing around. No. So, you know, for the longest time in those early days of Yeti, we knew we were on to something, but we felt like that it's going to be a family business, kind of like we, our dad had, right? Mm -hmm. It's going to be a, um, something that could support us and our families. 
and and we'd have a handful of employees and it's in a it's in a space that we had passion for yeah. outdoors hunting and fishing and it was you know we i remember we hired our first warehouse guy then we hired someone to help with customer service emails then order all from dripping springs yeah seems like yeah, yeah. <laughs> shane wisnett <you> know. <laughs> so um and it turned into a really iconic brand and i think going from and it it turned into what seemed like watching it a very it was like a badge of honor for a lot of hunters and fishers and i wonder how i've always wondered how intentional that was and what other cuz the only other brand that i'd ever seen that seemed like a badge of honor was like ducks unlimited i mm-hmm. think mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's a conservation organization that people you know you know that they'll go to the banquets get some of the gear or stuff like that and they'll put gotcha. a sticker on the back of the truck but yeah. that's right you I mean they put a sticker on the back of their truck I th- I they're, think part, what it, they're part of the club i think yeah. what it was is that this these coolers were were the right price point where anybody could figure out how to buy one even if they shouldn't spend four three or four hundred dollars on a cooler you know mm-hmm. so it was just the right price point and kind of high end and what you know, it kind of spoke to that outdoor lifestyle so that, i think that's why it became the badge honor and then back then you know the trucker hat was kind of coming back and you know anytime we'd have a retail sale we'd throw a trucker hat in there so people start wearing the hat around put yeah. stickers on the truck that sort of thing so it it did become that and i think it has to do around with the kind of a little bit higher end and the price point of it. it 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 definitely started with the product it you know we were uncompromised on our approach to product development and the quality right yeah. i mean it, it was it was the cooler that we were building for ourselves and then selling the rest. And so the, the, the foundation is around this rotomolded cooler, and it is an, an, an expensive price point that the consumer had to justify it, and they justified it through the durability message, the ice retention message, and then, but it's an emotional purchase at the same time. It's, a, it's, mm-hmm. it's around their pursuits of, of hunting and fishing. But I, I think for the longest time, you know, the, the brand it was the product first, and the brand kind of lived below the product. And we had a great product, and, and we were um, selling to consumers like ourselves. But then you started seeing the brand kind of take off and become bigger than the product itself. Mm-hmm. And that's when you saw this opportunity to leverage the brand for other products as well. I think we looked up a few years into the business, and we had 50 employees, and, and we recognized that this is a something that's has an opportunity to go beyond just this original cooler. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, and, and, and I, I feel like, you know, we recognize that it's bigger than Ryan and I as well. Mm-hmm. You know, we had to surround ourselves with smart and capable people. And, and I think if we, if we did anything right, it was just finding the right people at the right time. So it, it sounds like you guys, you had swag at the time, but you weren't selling merchandise. What was the first line extension after the original cooler? You know, we were selling some t-shirts and hats, but you know, that was gotcha. just the, the swag. And we, we were probably giving way more of that away than, um, than we were selling. I think we recognized that we could do the same thing to the soft cooler space that we did to the hard cooler space with a, you know, through design and materials and, and um, zippers and, <laughs> and, um, and really, you know, that space was, we recognized that it was a big space, you know, more portable, throw it over the shoulder, go, go 
you know, down to the boat or whatever. The only cooler with lube for a zipper. Yeah, that's right. right. (laughs) So we recognized that that was an opportunity to leverage the brand and take us into the soft cooler space, but it was just a development exercise. And a good product development just takes a long time. And we finally got there. We got there with... um, It can take a long time. It doesn't always, but on that soft cooler, you know, it... You know, it it took a while. Yeah, it seems like a complex product. Yeah. And then you had some good partners. When y'all were making coolers, did you ever think you'd get into tumblers and then that tumblers would be the such a huge... I mean, that that's a product development that didn't take that long. Yeah, but uh, it's still, product development, still a year-long process, even the best case, yeah. right? But we recognize that opportunity that there could be something with the vacuum-insulated stainless uh, drinkware space. Uh. And, you know, I, Ryan did, you know, this is another thing I'll take credit for. <laughs> <laughs> I know my family threw out all of their services to upgrade to the Yeti. So poor, I feel like that was what people, yeah. <laughs> that's what people used prior. Uh, so the vac- vacuum insulation has been around forever. And it was us doing a kind of a unique design, more in a tumbler shape, when in the past everyone was doing bottles and, and thermoses. Yeah. And, and because we were way more ice retention focused it had to be had to have that feel to it Mm -hmm. and i I remember that development process i didn't want to put a lid on on the top of the 20 ounce and the 30 ounce and because as soon as you put a black plastic lid up there it turns into a coffee cup right right (laughs) but one of our early engineers he suggested well maybe we should do clear and that was that was kind of a moment okay as soon as you do that that you get more of that turvis feel of Mm -hmm. clear and putting ice in there and you know, we knew it was an opportunity. We obviously, what Drinkware did, you know, we, we became a $100 million company just on coolers alone. Mm-hmm. When we introduced Drinkware, we turned into a $400 million company overnight. Amazing. And, and because we were selling so much Drinkware and that brand recognition and just the volume out there, we started selling more coolers because of that. Right. You know, people were getting introduced to the brand through the stainless drinkware, then yeah. they were, you know, their next purchase would be one of our coolers. And it had a wow, it had a wow factor. You know, the people, you know, send us stories and, it, you know, the, the magic of vacuum insulation of keeping ice and putting it in a hot vehicle and just yeah. coming back, you know, hours later and it's just all still there. So yeah. that wow factor was, and, yeah. and just leveraging the brand. I, th- I think, you know, Yeti, the, as as the cooler brand, a four hundred dollar cooler. That's a uh, you have to put a lot of thought into that purchase. <laughs> Although we were very premium for the drinkware space, a thirty dollar tumbler. Although it's five ten x of a a plastic version of it, it's just way more of this affordable luxury and had that wow factor and a brand to go with it. And you could do the brand subtly on it yeah, as well. You're not screaming the, that's the right. brand name on that's the Tumblr, right. which is very cool. Yeah. And tying it to uh, Mostly Green, I wonder, has anyone ever tried to quantify how many plastic bottles y'all have saved with Yeti tumblers? I don't know if anyone has. Yeah, I haven't heard. I, I put, I mean, I've put thought into it, but I, who knows? Yeah. You know, I, I think that early on as we launched that product and I started seeing it out in the marketplace... I do remember going into a Starbucks and two people in front of me had their Yeti tumbler in their hand. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking at that and saying, gosh, 
that's a big impact. They're replacing the paper cup that comes out of Starbucks. Mm-hmm. And I'm, you know, just thinking to myself, well, this is going on every day, everywhere, mm-hmm. right? And then when you look at our bottles and the number of whether it's out on the water or just traveling around and the, the number of plastic that it's replacing, you know, I don't know what it is, but it, it's, it's, it's meaningful. It's up there. Yeah. 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 Is that part of the messaging that Yeti has? You know, we've, we've never taken credit for it. You know, our messaging has always been around our, the durability story, the ice retention story, the quality story. And then, you know, we do a lot of storytelling around the Yeti lifestyle, around hunting and fishing and outdoor pursuits. And it's the cool thing about the brand. It's although our origin is fishing and hunting, it's definitely spilled over into ranching and oil field and and surfing and camping and tailgating and all these different end markets that we, we knew were there but we never we never thought the brand would ever get there we knew it worked well in our space that we knew mm-hmm. but it started spilling over naturally but we've never really talked or taken credit for the sustainability message yeah. and and I see it. I mean, it's the Starbucks story that I saw firsthand. Mm -hmm. And those original uh, coolers that we sold back in 96, 97, 98, they're still being used today. And um, Unless a bear got to them. Yeah, that's right. right. (laughs) And they rarely, our products rarely make it to the landfill. And if you look at our drinkware, same story. Yeah. It's, It's a product that when we started selling that drinkware in 2014, those, they're still in, on the shelves at these homes and second homes and cabins and yeah. whatever else. There were a lot of gifts for a long time. And so now we have a, a cabinet completely full of Yetis. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> at least 15, I would say. <laughs> yeah. But it sounds like uh, mostly green. We should get in touch with the Yeti marketing department and work out some sustainability. I'll catch you a deal you can't refuse. <laughs> <laughs> if you... <laughs> Um, and so another component that I feel like Yeti hasn't taken a lot of credit for, but has contributed to is conservation. Personally, having, you know, we both grew up in Texas and um, have seen uh, stories both of environmental disaster, I actually worked at an environmental consultant firm uh, here in Texas, and we were working with the TCEQ and quantifying how much chemicals was being dumped into um, the soil and water, and we would go on you know canoe trips or something and just see these pipes coming out into the rivers. And what has really saved Texas waterways is the hunting and fishing community and the conservation around that. Is Yeti involved with much many conservation organizations? I'm I'm sure the answer is yes. But what are y'all's favorites and kind of what are your thoughts on conservation? I mean, over the years, we've been involved with quite a few, like the Coastal Conservation Association, Ducks Unlimited, which you mentioned earlier. Um, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. Yeah, there's there's been a, a lot of them just after different, you know, outdoor pursuits. Captains yeah. for Clean Water. And that's that, For me, that seems like a newer one. But that's, you know, there's a lot of water quality issues are getting enough fresh water through the Everglades down there. And, and, you know, that's kind of a hot topic these days that they're, you know, I think for Yeti, whether it was CCA Ducks Unlimited, it was, our consumer was there, right? Our consumer was passionate about the outdoors and they would be a part of these groups, whether it's CCA or Ducks Unlimited or whatever. And it was just a great place for us to show up as well. So, yeah, we, we've been involved since day one on multiple levels with these different groups. Yeah. 
almost inadvertent sustainability pioneers. I didn't even know y'all were being pioneers. We didn't know. <laughs> we had no idea. We just showed up. <laughs> and so what are y'all up to these days? You know, we're um, basically, you know, for the longest time, it was everything we could do to keep up with Yeti. And, and it, that was not sustainable for us personally. You know, luckily, we were fortunate enough to get to a spot where as a team built out at Yeti, and you know, I, I um, was CEO up until 2015, found a fantastic um, replacement, and given us the ability to kind of go at our own pace. We're, we're still engaged with, with Yeti when we want to, but we're also, we reprioritized our life where it's, you know, more about family and friends and all those things that you had to put on the back burner in those early years of Yeti, like health. And, and basically it was, we had that tiger by the tail and it was everything we could do to keep up with it. And everything else took a back burner to it, mm-hmm. took a back seat to it. And, and that was family, friends, health, you know, just taking care of yourself. And in our own outdoor pursuits, I mean, we weren't, Ryan was hunting way more before and fishing way more before Yeti than we showed up and it was laser focus. And now we're back to those days of pursuits and family and friends. Yeah. You created a company to help you fish better and then you couldn't fish. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Well, it's glad to hear that you guys have gotten back to that. And I'm sure that's been a great transition for y'all. Absolutely. And uh, you talk about health. Do you all have any uh, healthy habits? How do you stay healthy? Mm, well, I prioritize, you know, you know, working out in the morning and whether it's walking or with a trainer or do some boxing. You know, I, I really like that. And then try to, you know, work on eating healthy. That's half the battle. You know, mm-hmm. I love going out to eat and eating good food and, and uh, watching out on that front, you know. Yeah. I mean, so. I think we um, definitely lean into, like, your time is limited. Let's take care of yourself because it's, I mean, we are in a position where, um, you know, we're watching our, our parents get older. It's, mm-hmm. it's tough. And, yeah. and you want to take care of yourself so you can live a long, healthy life and, and have fun. I mean, yeah. we are having fun, so let's take care of ourselves. <laughs> and so the hunting and fishing, do you all eat what you catch as well? You're mostly catching and release. It, it really depends. Uh, you know, uh, do a lot of, I'd say mostly catch and release, but every once in a while we'll keep a redfish to eat it fresh. You know, I never like to freeze anything. And so, uh, you know, if you can go out and just keep what you might eat that evening or the next day, uh, that that's fine. But a lot of times it's just catch and release. Yeah. I read um, somewhere that you should ensure the fish that you eat are line caught. Do you guys know, or can you talk to and speak to the other types of fishing and the impact that those have? Uh, you know, I don't know a lot about it, but, you know, all, there's a lot of different types of commercial fishing and, and farm, farm-raised fish and stuff like that. And so, uh, you know, you just want to do something that's sustainable. There's plenty of species that are, are struggling from overfishing, over-commercial fishing, and, uh, and there's a lot of bycatch and stuff like that. So you try to pick a fish that, that you would like to eat, you know, you think is sustainable. And doing that yourself is usually the most sustainable because there's... There's laws put around what you can keep and stuff like that, and they're always more than you need. I mean, you, you know, with all the different state and federal laws around, you know, just recreational fishing, it's usually meant for a sustainable model, you know, and that's yeah. so if people were doing more of that for themselves and instead of just buying all the fish, I think that would be. So if you're at a restaurant, what are you ordering? Uh, well, I try to stay away from stuff like uh, swordfish and, uh, you know, stuff that st- seems to be struggling, you know, and I personally, 
I haven't studied it, but I, I stay away from anything that's farm raised. Also, mm-hmm. uh, mainly because of the taste. Uh, I, I yeah, because I'm used to really quality fish that I caught. You know? <laughs> but but also, you know, I'm there's a lot of. Um, I'm not the person to talk to about this, but you know, there's a lot of fish farming. Is uh, there some environmental it's impacts yeah. to uh, that? Massive also. ones. When they're yeah. the fish end up being very diseased, yeah. and they feed them all chickens yeah. because chickens are so massively um, available and so much byproduct. So they're feeding these fish chickens instead of what they should be eating. All the fish get sick, and then all the effluent water from those farms is toxic to the yeah. environment around it. So there's. Uh, I've been unable to find any fish farming that is anything but horrible for the environment. And then it creates a, a poor tasting fish. Yeah. And the salmon that they farm, they have to feed them red dye because their flesh won't be red when they all they do is eat these chicken pellets that are yeah. white chickens. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> yeah. And so it's a pretty nasty industry. We try to stick to the only... You know, fish we eat because we we don't fish a ton, although we go with our parents occasionally and we'll keep what we catch there. But we get salmon, they fly down from Alaska and they're sockeye right after they spawn and they're all going to die anyway. And so it's about the only sustainable fish we found. But most fish stocks around the world are, are just decimated. Um, and the Gulf Coast is, is somewhat of a bright spot because of the regulation and mm-hmm. um, redfish in particular has been able to recover pretty dramatically from the low points in the 90s when I was trying to catch redfish. Yeah, <laughs> and I think, I think that a lot of credit is CCA, Coastal Conservation, and Texas Parks and Wildlife. I think some of the things that they have done over the years is like there's plenty of redfish down there. And, and we hear stories from our dad that you know, he'd go down the Texas coast and couldn't find a redfish. Now, we had pretty good luck chasing reds in the 90s. We did. <laughs> but, but, you know, I, I know I would think that would be in the 70s that, yeah. that our dad had trouble, you know, seeing a redfish. But you know, they started coming back, and they did some, some hatchery efforts to, mm-hmm. to restock them and, and put regulations on them and took them out. You know, in Texas, they're not a commercial fish. So if you see redfish on the menu, you know that's farm-raised. Mm. And so uh, and a lot that's of times they'll say Texas Gulf. Well, that's farm-raised fish down near the Gulf. You know? so <laughs> yeah. It's not, it's not. So, I, you know, I never would order redfish at a, at a restaurant because, you know, I, I don't want something that's farm-raised like that. You know, mm-hmm. I love redfish, but. Yeah, not, there, not I mean, there's raised. nothing better than catching and keeping a redfish and eating it that day or the next day fresh. Yeah. Same thing with wild quail. You know, Ryan has a place up in southwest Kansas that, you know, we'll go quail hunting, and it's like, it's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. We, I think our dad, whether it was chasing white bass here on the Highland Lakes in central Texas, or we do have a love for cooking the wild game. Do you, do either of you worry that any of your um, kids will be vegan? This never crossed my mind. <laughs> <laughs> it's their choice. <laughs> Um, Have any of them attended any trade shows like that, you guys did growing up with your dad? That's funny thing that, that our kids, because Yeti got so big so fast, when we would walk into our dad's metal building, you know, he was in, on the phone, right? Talking to customer service or he was shipping or receiving or kidding product or product development. So we got to see everything. Well, quickly at Yeti, 
you'd walk into the building and one department is, you know, made up of 30 people that are doing one activity. Right. <laughs> and you don't get the benefit of that small wearing all the hats. And so our kids didn't, aren't exposed to anything that we were exposed to growing up in small business. And I think about that a lot. You know, they didn't, they didn't get the trade show experience that, that we got. They didn't get the small business experience. It's just yet he got too successful too fast to see it firsthand. Yeah. Uh, I can share the stories, but they don't get to see it firsthand. Mm -hmm. right. right. Have any of them expressed any interest at ever working at Yeti, or do you think that might be a path for any of them? I don't think them? that's a path for them. I mean, I, I realized at Yeti that, you know, when we would, early on, we'd make a job post and get hundreds of resumes. And we still do. We get, when we, we make a job post, we'll get, I don't know, hundreds, maybe a thousand resumes. And what I realized, I wouldn't be able to get hired by my own company, right? <laughs> yeah. And um, these are all highly qualified folks that get whittled down to two or three people, and then you pick the best of, of, of that batch, right? Mm -hmm. And I just want my kids to pursue something that they're passionate about, like we did. Yeah. And, and Ryan and I talk about that a lot. And if they want to pursue working at Yeti, I wish them luck. But I also <laughs> don't want to take the opportunity away from, from someone else right. as well mm -hmm. that's more qualified for that position. I, I would say that if we were going to push them toward anything, it'd be, you know, starting your own business, yeah. entrepreneurship. That's right. And, you know, that's, that's right. what yeah. we grew up with. And, you know, Yeti ship has sailed. Let's do something else, you know. That's in and, and if you show up at Yeti today, you're just you're a small piece of, of a bigger department mm -hmm. where I think the, the fun and the creativity around starting something from scratch and, and doing everything. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's, it's, I worked at um, an organic baby food company and I was the marketing department and I looked online to interview for a Yeti position in the marketing team. And the one I applied for was a B testing for email marketing. It was like so specific. I was like, wait, I was the marketing team. There's like a hundred things to apply for. Which one do I do? Like, what am I best at? Isn't that sad? Uh, it's so desirable in town. I, I probably at least two dozen people were like, I see you're connected to Roy on LinkedIn. Can you get me in at Yeti? I'm like, I don't know. And you, I think you just gave me the HR person. That's all I ever, I never even sent them to you after that. I'm just like, here's the HR person at Yeti. Thank you for not wasting my time. <laughs> you're welcome. So I'm an entrepreneur and I realized that I will always where I get fulfillment is actually in creating new things and starting new things that didn't exist before. Is, is there, is that next for y'all or was this y'all would be happy hunting and fishing and hanging out with family and friends? For me, I think it's a combination of both. I'm completely content with what we've done and it's given us the freedom to focus on those other priorities we talked about. Right. Mm -hmm. But I do love the creativity around small business and the hustle, the ideas, the vision. And I look back at those early years of Yeti and I would not trade them for the world, mm -hmm. but I would never want to put myself through that again. <laughs> never. Right. I, I, I also recognize what we did. We had a lot of things go for us. And you know, we did a lot of the right things and found a lot of the right people and you know, bringing into the company at the right time. But... Man, I look back and we were very fortunate to show up the right place at the right time with the right market and, yeah. and brand and, and people. And never, never in our wildest dreams did we ever think it would 
do what it did. Yeah. Right. And even looking at it today, you know, you still, you look at Yeti today, you can't believe it, but you still also feel like you might be on the front end of something bigger and better Mm -hmm. and scratching the surface of the, um, of the potential of the brand and, um, the opportunity. Um, incredible. I would say there's a lot of luck in success stories. Absolutely. Absolutely. Timing, luck. Put yourself in a, in a position where you can have success. You know, you're not, you're not going to be successful at everything, but I think that's one of the things is just put yourself out there. We weren't trying to create something like Yeti, but we were trying to create something that was good for Roy and I to support a family and stuff like that. So by putting yourself out there, doing your own deal, there's a chance, you know? I I mean, I think there's a lot to that, you know, uh, sticking your neck out. And we were in our 20s, so our risk was like other lost opportunity. It wasn't like we had a, you know, we weren't trying to support a, a family and put kids mm-hmm. through school and whatever. So, so there was not a whole lot of risk, but I do, you know, you see this a lot where people always have great ideas, but they're not willing to take the exposure or the risk. Right. Yeah. And I do think we were very scrappy and living off the land and low rollers. And I think we, mm-hmm. you know, every, every dime that we made off the company would go back in to fund the growth and bring in the right people. Yeah, it's almost hard to look back at the early days. And when I, like, I had a spreadsheet of where, you know, me and uh, my girlfriend could share a meal for $5 and that would be our dinner. Yeah. <laughs> like, the places we could go out, and, like, can't even believe the, how, you know, low our quality of life was and <laughs> standard was, of living. It was, it was fun. fun. <laughs> it was fun. Yeah, there's a fun aspect to it, but like you said, never want to go back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, kind of last question: What are y'all uh, excited about right now? What's got you fired up? Well, it's deer season right now. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, you know, we've been doing. I've been having a lot of fun. You know, getting. The, I have a nine and a seven-year-old, a nine-year-old boy, seven-year-old daughter, and they, you know, they love going to Kansas or down to South Texas, going to the ranch, and I've uh, been getting them into hunting. Uh, my son's just gone crazy with it, and, and just like I was when I was his age. And uh, so, you know, just staying busy with family and trying to stay healthy, and that's what's, you know, got us going right yeah, now. Yeah, I, I mean, I could say the exact same things, just um, <laughs> family, family first and, and staying healthy and enjoying the outdoors. And, you know, our, our parents uh, did a pretty good job with us and setting, you know, the bar for us as far as being good parents and trying to create the same thing for, for our kids is kind of my goal, yeah. our goal. Well, Jess, that was super fun for me. Yeah, that was enjoyable. I actually went to high school with these guys. If you probably picked up from the episode, Roy's been a good friend our whole lives. I remember, I mean, the first shotgun I ever shot was his. Oh, really? Yeah. (laughs) I didn't realize that. (laughs) We didn't own any guns, but pretty much everyone else in Drippin' Springs did. Makes sense. And quite a few people have made note of the entrepreneurial spirit and successes, I think, of our high school grads kind of from that era Mm -hmm. in the 90s. Maybe something in the water, but I guess, I mean, Austin must have already been producing a fair bit of entrepreneurs back then. And a lot of us were either kids of or had influence from those entrepreneurs. And while this podcast is about sustainability, I think the entrepreneurial stories just naturally come out and are super fascinating. Yeah, it really does seem like a lot of entrepreneurs came out of Dripping Springs and you yeah. comment on the water. I guess it was beyond just the minerals that was. <laughs> <laughs> there were, were a lot water. of minerals out there. <laughs> Every time I go to the dentist, they're like, 
did you grow up with hard water? It's like, yeah. Mm -hmm. How do you know? Because you have big teeth. <laughs> well, I enjoyed them a ton too. And it is really interesting to see the different ways that people are connected to sustainability. You know, Yeti doesn't really advertise their sustainability oriented qualities, but having a cooler that lasts forever. I mean, you can't really get more sustainable than that. You really can't. <laughs> and I've destroyed quite a few coolers myself. And if you include my dad and my brothers in the mix, there's dozens for sure. <laughs> Way more than the price of one Yeti, I would say. Well, I hope someone from their marketing team tries to quantify how many plastic bottles have been avoided by Yeti tumblers, because I bet that number is huge. And how many coolers have been wasted since they started selling theirs. We were just down on the Texas coast and definitely saw way more Yeti tumblers than plastic bottles for drinks. So it's having an impact. Yeah, it was great to see that. And Yeti is super modest about all of it. You know, just making products that they want to use with uncompromising quality. I had never really thought about how hunting and fishing organizations and conservation groups are positively impacting the environment, but they're a huge influence on, you know, who wants a clean environment for the fish and game. Yeah. Inadvertent sustainability pioneers, these guys are. They should be shouting that message. So if anyone from their marketing team wants to partner up, reach out. We'd love to help <laughs> preserve the environment and reduce plastic with Yeti. If you want to support coastal conservation organizations, we'll put the links in our show notes. Also make sure to take your Yeti cup everywhere to save plastic. <laughs> If you enjoyed these early, very raw episodes, please subscribe and send us feedback. Next up, we're going to be taking a deep dive into household waste, looking at common waste streams and what to do with them from food scraps to broken glass to all of those Amazon packaging varieties and what to do with each one. When you're subscribed, you'll get automatic notifications for new episodes. Thanks for listening.